0: You're listening to the DMZ Movers and Shakers Podcast. The podcast for entrepreneurs by the world-leading tech incubator, the DMZ. In this podcast, each episode brings in the movers and shakers of the world to cover leadership mentality, tips for business owners, and much, much more. So without further ado, let's get into it. Here's your host, Canada's leading podcaster, CPA and business strategist, Robert Gold, managing partner at Bennett Gold LLP.
1: Once again, from high atop the Movers and Shakers Podcast Center in Toronto, down in the barrows of the building, live and in the morning, we're way off to the west. I can see Carrot River, Saskatchewan. I'm Robert Gold, managing partner of Bennett Gold LLP, chart accountants and CPAs in Toronto today. This is going to be great fun. Doug Sutherland is with us. Doug is the chief technology officer, the CTO at SoundPays. SoundPays.com, where it says on the website, truly touchless commerce and a new commerce channel. I am fascinated by this. Doug. Welcome to the Movers and Shakers podcast. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. This is going to be really interesting to find out how we pay with sound. So a little bit of background on Doug. As a serial entrepreneur, Doug founded numerous companies throughout his career, digital marketing ventures, loyalty programs, hosting services. Doug is internationally known as a business and technology expert. Doug, tell us more about your journey as a serial entrepreneur in the tech space and how this got you to be your current role as the CTO at SoundPace.
0: That sounds like an interesting challenge. I've been around a while, probably too long to talk about, but my career wasn't unlike many that I've met that became entrepreneurs. I bounced around between large companies and small companies. I like the expense account and the travel side of a large company. I always felt like I didn't have enough control. I wasn't making a difference. So I would then join a small company. I had lots of huge wins at that time. I really thoroughly enjoyed it. But in 2004, after being out of the country for a while, I decided to come back to Toronto and join one of my friends in her startup called Dexfit. It was a company that we took public. We raised $25 million. We had a great time doing it. And during that, I had an aha moment. And that was that Marketers needed technical support, or were challenged technically, or even in some cases disintermediated by their technical side in, within the companies they're in. But they had budget, and I thought this was a place I needed to go help. And so I made it my career in 2005 to go out on my own and to effectively be a fractional CTO, for lack of a better term, with entrepreneurs who were themselves probably either really smart business people or really smart marketers. Since then, I've worked with 100 different startups, maybe a little more than 100. At some point, I decided to be the entrepreneur and not the second command and not the backup to the entrepreneur. That led me eventually to sound pace. I had a few actual full-time gigs in that time as a CTO, uh, once for a few years at Tim Hortons and with Soundpace for the last three years. So it's been really quite interesting. I still do a lot of mentoring with a lot of startups, and I have a lot of fun with it. But I think now, actually an okay career to be an entrepreneur. When I was getting into this in 2005 at home, where I was both a husband and a father, not so much supported. with The idea of sort of striking it out on your own. But now, I mean, at the DMZ, I support two groups in, in their boot camps surprised to find in both cases their parents were encouraging them to join the boot camp. That would never have happened when my son was growing up, I can assure you. Yeah, I want to ask you a
1: question. As a mentor, because I mentor a lot of companies as well, what do you find the greatest need is from startups from a mentor?
0: First of all, I think I learn more mentoring than I give. I I agree with that. It's not true, but (laughs) I feel that way when I get off uh, the Zoom uh, each week. But I think they just need assurances and confidence that they're going in the right direction. Both groups I've met and any entrepreneurs I've mentored always have an idea. They're, they seem like they're going in the right direction, but they have this tone in their voices if they're a bit scared or a bit unsure of themselves. And I think my job half the time is to challenge them with a real good question and then convince them they know exactly what the hell they're doing and, and get out of their way and let them do it. But it is interesting to me that how much confidence building is really um, what I need to do. And do you find your role as a mentor
1: changes from the first meeting to the 10th to the 30th? Robert, it's a great question.
0: I walked into Basecamp, which is an eight-week program, with eight planned weeks of mentoring. After week two, I threw it out the window. It's so true that the teams do not need from you the same thing you think they're going to need as as they grow. Their own energy changes, their own confidence changes. Often, they're getting ahead of you. You know, I actually have to catch up to them thinking oh, today we will talk about where to find money. I uh, know we're past that, sir. we want to know how does the go to market strategy work, and you know? oh wow, you're ahead, okay, let's do that that it changes a lot um, yeah. and and they're incredible people, they grow so fast, they learn so much that so what they need from you changes even to a point where they don't need that much from you, which is really cool,
1: which is really cool because then they are teaching you because they've now gone down a path that you didn't envision, and then they're they're showing you things that can be accomplished that you had no idea they were going to go that route. It's quite amazing. Uh, let, let's really get, is. let's really. go back into uh, into our main topic, which. Right now, I want to talk about how we affect the retail market, and particularly with new technologies. Technologies now connecting consumers with retail are transforming everything, and they're making it increasingly competitive by disrupting conventional customer service tactics. And that's exactly what you're doing. The sector's undergone drastic changes, and SoundPays has made it quite the splash, I understand, with your solution. So what exactly does SoundPays do, and how do you leverage ultrasonic sound wave technology? To me, this is Elon Musk territory
0: well well thanks it's it's very interesting when I joined the firm they you would have heard them banter around the word that they were a fintech company. I actually think they're an ad tech company, and we've been you know pivoting through a couple of different perspectives of that space even back into some of our original technology and thinking through the pandemic so that's been really quite an eye-opening experience. The original idea was and this predates you know, the idea of Apple Pay and Google Pay. But this sound pays would be the way you paid for things on your phone. I was thinking to say next year will be 100 years since Alexander Graham Bell died. This is the first time I've used my phone for a phone call, a conference call in um, at least a year. Um, I typically use my phone for apps. I use my phone for uh, text messaging, for signal, for telegram, for Slack, but I don't use it to talk on. And we saw this payment device in your pocket almost always with you in a store has been an important vehicle to do something in, the, in that space. The idea of near-field communication or tapping your phone was interesting, but we thought we could do it better. And hence, we came up with this idea that you could effectively play a unique sound code in the ultrasonic space between 18,000 kilohertz and effectively 22,000 kilohertz, that your phone could hear that. It could be invisible or inaudible to the, uh, to the human ear and that we could use that sound code to get the phone to do something. Uh, In this case, make a payment. Hence the name SoundPay. It's interesting because after we pivoted to ad tech, you do not hear anything. Mm -hmm. And in a typical implementation, you don't pay with SoundPay, but rather SoundPay enables the payment. Because your typical brand will have media that they want to have a sound code in. Maybe it's a a 30-second television ad. Maybe it's something that's playing on a billboard or it's in a stadium or on a stage or wherever it might be, but it's just sound. It gets played on a speaker. So we don't need any special technology. There's no little things need to glue to the POS device. It really just uses a speaker. And your phone is the device that captures that sound and does something with it, which is fabulous. So the brand really wants to take some media and somehow encode it with your sound code. They want to play that somewhere. And if it's a perfect circle, they also have the app where they want to listen to it. So that would be your retailer kind of model where I want you to use the retailer's app in the retailer store or off the retailer's signage or when the retailer is on TV and I want to engage with you. And that's its perfect circle opportunity and works beautifully in those circles. What we find in the marketplace is really we've got uh, brands with media or we have venues with media like a stadium who has a brand like Nike, let's say, and a wallet, which may be the team's wallet, might be the stadium's wallet, maybe Nike's wallet, but that wallet has to contain the sound page, software development kit or SDK that can hear. And so you got to tie those pieces together. We do a lot of POCs with it because it's beautiful to watch. A little small app, tap the app to listen, hear the sound code, bring the purchase page, buy a jersey, buy a hat, buy something, put it in your cart, and ship it. So it's quite interesting that way. But it could be a of different things. We love the out-of-home advertising side of it. We love the stadium side. We think shopping malls are like easy, low-hanging fruit for this stuff. And my personal favorite is television. I think we're going to change the way TV is watched uh, within the next 12 months because that's a, a new and expanding market for us. That's fabulous idea. Can you talk to us about that a little bit? There's a couple of ways you could see this going. Um, if I am Bell and I'm selling you the, the TV service in your house, You could have a compendium app or even the Bell app or the 5 app that could listen to all of the commercial content at the touch of a button. Again, the consumer has to sign up for the app. The consumer has to request it to listen for the sound code, um, and then the consumer has to engage. So for us, we are measuring three or four or five attributes of that consumer uh, that may not get measured anywhere else. For the broadcaster, it's an opportunity to to upsell their advertising to the brand. Say, hey, we can add this extra feature, which will get you these five or six pieces of data. You could integrate it with Amazon, if you like, and say, you know, Amazon will sell this to you. So uh, you can watch this commercial for this new medicine. You can buy it from Amazon, have it delivered to your house all through the app, all while, you know, you're sitting up with your feet on the couch and watching TV. QR codes are tough to, you know, use QR codes on TV. And certainly from a distance, this thing works 30, 40, 50 feet away, uh, it's personal. I open the app. I click the button. I made the decision to buy. Um, Not my household, me. And today, even if there is measurement going on, like with Nielsen, you know which household may have watched TV. You don't necessarily know which consumer watched the TV channel. That's kind of where we can step in with a little more uh, granular data, as well as the close the loop, as it were, to actually make the purchase during the TV show. So it could be embedded in the show. It can be embedded in a commercial embedded in the news, it really, it, it doesn't really matter. It's quite amazing. I just hope you follow
1: the uh, the Google dictate, which they did not follow, which is don't be evil. <laughs> You've got some pretty sneaky don't be technology exactly.
0: there. And you know consumers are getting smarter and smarter and smarter. They they know that their privacy issues are real. They're dealing with those. That's why we've kept it very much a consumer-engaged opportunity, not something where we're listening in the background like your TV might be. Or, or like your Alexa or or Google device might be doing.
1: Exactly. Let's talk about product launches because I know that's an awful lot of what our audience and our entrepreneurs and technopreneurs across the country want to know about product launch strategy. And I know that Quite often, the most important time in a startup's life cycle is finally its product launch. I mean, Steve Jobs used to say, successful companies ship. So if you're not shipping, it's close the doors. And having a robust strategy in place is now, it's a must. Doug, I know you've launched numerous products, including the award-winning Tim Horton's Double Double Card. How would you describe a successful product launch, and what steps should a founder take to ensure that it's smooth and follow that up with the early signs of things are going right or wrong? So let's just talk about product launches, Doug.
0: Sure, I think everybody's got their a different model of, of what they think goes into a, a launchable product from A to Z. For me, it's an eight-step process, really. For me, as a as a technologist slash business person, I think I often see opportunities well past the early stages. If I'm coming in as a CTO, I'm usually coming in just pre-launch or post-launch, which is kind of interesting as well. If you sort of accept the fact that there is product definition and a go-to-market strategy and you gotta find some money to build it, then you're gonna build it all up and then launch it and find money to launch, to be honest. This pre-launch period, this part that leads up to the day you launch, for me is the most exciting, the most important, and most likely not to be done well. You know, there are this runway, for lack of a better term, you know, you still got to be going through your marketing plan. You still got to be doing SWOT analysis. You still have to be thinking about awareness and budget and media and social media and getting things sorted out in terms of your technology, uh, your quality assurance. You've got so many things going on in real time. It's like the spinning plates that we would have seen in the 60s and 70s on the Ed Sullivan show. That's going to date me. But there's all of this going on. You're right. I've spoken to a lot of people. I've met a lot that have gone in both the positive way and the negative way. I think that at this launch runway, three things happen. And, and, I'll, and your Steve Jobs quote is exactly right. One of the main problems is people just fail to launch. And I can get into that in a little more detail. They also fail to sell, which is interesting. And they're related, uh, but quite uniquely different. And then they run out of money, which is. The biggest problem of all, I always think of those store, those restaurant shows on TV where the restaurateur spent all of his or her money building this fantastic restaurant and then can't keep the doors open of the day after they've launched because they hadn't planned through the cost of actually running a restaurant. They only had the cost of building a restaurant, and I see a lot of times that funding the build is different than funding the launch, and so you've got to be careful not to run out of money. If I pick two or three things, I think I would pick... Not really knowing your ideal client. Not everyone is your ideal client. Not everyone is going to buy your product, and so you got to get over that first, right? And and you know, if you talk to an entrepreneur early on, this idea. So who's going to buy your app? Everybody's going to buy my app. Not everybody's going to buy your app. If you believe in the Pareto principle, that eighty percent of the revenue is going to come from twenty percent of the audience. What are that twenty percent, and how do you find lookalikes? How do you really know where your ideal client is? I love the entrepreneur who's ballsy enough to believe that he or she is a category king. It's got that category king mentality. I've got a great product. I've got a great company. And I've created this niche. I've created this category that didn't exist before. And now I'm going to dominate the category I just created I always think of the the interesting story of Swanson wanting to sell frozen vegetables to houses in America, but nobody had freezers. So the first thing they did is they launched a freezer company and sold freezers. And then they sold frozen vegetables to fill those freezers. I think that's amazing. That's how you create and dominate a category. The problem I see the most is knowing when to stop tinkering. They've got the GTM as a go-to-market. I always like to say, get to market, damn it. The GTM is get to market. Stop tinkering. Stop playing around. The colors are good enough, the functionality is well enough, you gotta get in the market. The money's gonna run out, so let's get going. So I think those are, are interesting points. And I get the point that people say, well, you can't you only get one chance to go to market, so don't mess it up. Um that's not the real word they use, but yeah, don't mess it up. I get that. But not getting to market at all is just as bad. So you've got to get out of your own way. And I, I tell the story about a, a book I was reading years ago, 2008, working with an entrepreneur. On page 47 of the book, it said, these are the attributes of an entrepreneur who will never launch. And I went to the person and said, you have to read page 47 because it was written for you. And I was trying <laughs> to struggling, about what it was that I couldn't quite get my finger on, this is it. You are never, ever, ever going to launch. And I've never forgotten those bullets because I see them all the time. And I can actually say, you know, I'd love to work with you, but I don't think you'll ever launch because these are your attributes. And so I know it's a little black and white to say that, but for me, I've got to know who my ideal client is too, right? And so I know that I, not everyone is my client, so I have to accept that. The last thing I'm going to say on this, I don't have a better analogy for it, but the day after you launch, you become a farmer. And you got to do things the way farmers do things. You get up at 6 a.m. every day, you walk around your fields, you water your crops, you check for insects, you put in fertilizer, you do the chore. You'll see it a lot. You'll see that the folks who start a company, let's say she's uh, got this great idea, but she's a marketer, she's a product person. The next hire that you'll see out from that company is looking for a CTO founder. But what I never really see is a hire for a farmer slash founder. At the end of the day, the entrepreneur is not a good farmer. Their brain just doesn't work that way. The CTO will have his or her hands full on getting the tech to the next level. They're not going to be a farmer either. Somebody has to get up every morning at 6 a.m. and tend to the crops and make sure they grow. The CTO founder is likely to know how to water them, will water them, will forget to water them. The CEO founder doesn't even know there's a field up there, so forget about asking them to water anything. It's not going to happen. So that fourth thing, I guess if I'm not going to say three, but I'll grab four, which is make sure you have someone who can farm when you're when you're done, because the morning after it's farming. And going back to that restaurant analogy, the entrepreneur knows if he's the back of office or she's the front of the house person, they know that you need both to survive. So somebody's got to farm this one.
1: These are amazing points. And the thinking like a farmer, I've actually never heard that, but it it really, really makes sense. I want to ask you one more thing about about product launches. And you might've mentioned this, but let's stress it. Is there one thing that entrepreneurs often overlook when they launch a
0: product? If farming isn't it, then it's going to be the fact, and it's a, it's probably very close to another Steve Jobs quote, it's not the customer's fault. It's the serial entrepreneur, it's the entrepreneur, it's the builder, it's their job. It's not the customer's job. And so, believing somehow that, that if you don't have the right service or the right solution or the right product and trying to push that square peg into a round hole and demand the customer adjust, it's not the customer's job. So, be prepared to pivot or to change or to modify your strategies right up and on the day of launch because you're going to learn. Every single day, you're going to learn. So we talked about before about mentoring Basecamp folks at the DMZ. They teach me every day. I hope I teach them every day, but it's pivoting every single moment of every single day as they try to get their products just right. And, you know, you'll become, as an entrepreneur who's building something, you'll fall in love with your product. You'll get ingrained with it and you'll forget to get out of your own way. Well, and that's a problem. People have become married to their products,
1: and they can't get out of their own way. And if other people see the flaws in the product, if you're married to it, and if you, you've got blinders on, it's, that's a problem. That's a real problem. It's, uh, entrepreneurs are so married to their passion of the of the product or the service. I find as a mentor, that's the challenge, getting to step back a little bit and looking critically at what they're doing, what they're creating, what they're offering.
0: Yeah, I do it through mindset. I, I have... I think for 20 years now, uh, always say to people, listen, I'm gonna do my McKinsey on myself now. and I'm gonna do what McKinsey would do to me and ask myself these questions. and I, I will do it, getting that mindset right and, and just being able to flip my inner thinking as if I'm an outside consultant for McKinsey asking the six or seven questions McKinsey would ask you. And I have to answer myself honestly or I, or I can't I can't deal with myself. And yeah, you're absolutely right, getting out of your own way funny, I, I think of a graphic artist. The first thing most graphic artists will say to a brand, you need to do your brand strategy and we need a new logo. Do not ask the entrepreneur to change his or her logo. They built it on the back of an napkin. they're the most proud of it, it's more important than their, their baby. Please don't ask them to change their logo. And, and yet, we ask them to rethink their product, their product design it's tough on them. I get it. They've got to do their own McKinsey on themselves. They need to be able to get out of their own way.
1: That's a really, really good point. Doug, social, how do we find you? I know SoundPays is soundpays.com, but where else might we find you on the social nets?
0: If you Google N49Doug, all one word, you'll find my socials, you'll find my websites. The company that I founded, we now call North49, it's had a different name before, but you'll find my my Twitter and my Insta and some of my other stuff under N49Doug. Excellent. We will look there. Now, my favorite
1: part, everybody knows the rapid-fire questions. I ask a question, you answer off the top of your head. Are you ready?
0: Ready. Favorite quote or memorable piece of advice that you've been given? I guess I, my the last book I read that I loved was Ben Horowitz's About Hard Things, and he taught me – I'm, I'm going to change his words a little bit – but over time, a relationship with me will be um, so intense to tolerate or – so not intense that it could be problematic. And I, I get that about myself, but it, it, I like to remind myself of that quote from him, that the relationship would be too intense to tolerate or not intense enough to be positive. And, and I'm, I'm okay with that. Excellent. Favorite social media platform? I guess it's Twitter for me. I, I play with Instagram mostly to follow Dragon's Den folks and see what both Michelle Romano is on right now after she got all her money from bank But yeah. An up-and-coming startup that's on your radar that you can tell our listeners about. So we're talking about, uh, that's interesting, we're talking about uh, the, the mentors. The mentors taught me about Flutter, uh, Google's uh, new way of sort of building uh, uh, native apps. And there's a company called Flutter, Flutter Flow. Say that three times fast. That I find quite interesting. I'm also getting hung up on RevOps in a company out of California called Outreach.io. I like them. But you need a Canadian story. Love Green Gruff. Green Gruff, uh, is selling CBD-based dog treats in the U.S. where they can do that legally. Can't do that legally in Canada yet. Growing like Stink, doing a very good job. Love how they've sort of got to market. Again, got out of their way. Thought they were going to be a Shopify store. Figured out they weren't Shopify store very quickly. Got out of their own way and partnered up with wholesalers and retailers. So I just love what they're doing. Early bird or night owl? Yeah, bed by 2, up by 6.30. Okay, sounds
1: right. What are you watching on Netflix these days?
0: (laughs) Um, Not much. I'm a Young and the Restless and Coronation Street person. That's not going to help anybody. (laughs) Whoa, that that is bad.
1: I don't think we – we might want to edit that out. (laughs) (laughs) Young and the Restless. Fair enough. Okay, finally, my favorite question, what industry will be gone in five years?
0: Wow, what a great question. What industry will be gone in five years?
1: Probably bricks-and-mortar retail. Ooh, I've had somebody say paper, somebody say lawyers. Nobody ever said retail before.
0: And this pandemic has highlighted what I think will be the future.
1: Well, I don't go to stores very much anymore. I didn't go before the pandemic, and now I go even less.
0: You know, I hadn't thought about it. You might be right on that. Doug Sutherland. What's that? Mrs. Doug can't live without going to a store. She never really got into online shopping. So I get that it's an audience, right? But, again... She still uses the phone for calling people. Um, I don't think that's going to be true in five years. So, yeah, I I think the end of the the bricks and mortar retail is probably true.
1: You might be right. Doug Sutherland, CTO, Chief Technology Officer, soundpays.com. Doug, thank you so much for being a guest on the Movers and Shakers podcast. It's been fantastic.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Until next time, I'm Robert Gold, Managing Partner of Binnigold LLP, Chartered Accountants and CPAs in Toronto. If you want to see how a great CA firm innovates, check us out at binnigold.ca. See you next time in the morning, everyone, and good night, Carrot River, Saskatchewan.
0: And that's a wrap for this episode of the DMZ Movers and Shakers Podcast. Make sure you subscribe and follow our podcast so you never miss an episode. You can also visit us at dmz.ryerson.ca for more tips and tools designed to support your business. Until next time.